Welcome to Then and Now. I'm Brandon Hodnett, and today I'm joined by Chris Bourne, class of 2017. Chris was a 1,000-point scorer for the men's basketball team and was recently the recipient of an NIH F31 fellowship. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. Um, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about your postgrad research and the fellowship that you earned? Yeah, definitely. So right now, I'm a PhD candidate at Weill Cornell Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences, which is a collaborative graduate program, also with Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, which is one of the oldest cancer centers in the country. I think it is actually the oldest. Um, and basically what I do is research ways to teach the immune system how to fight cancer. So typically the immune system is going to fight infections, you know, viruses like COVID, bacteria, fungus, um, you know, parasites. And what we do is try and redirect the immune system to also be able to fight cancer. So through my graduate research, I've been working a lot on this. And then um, even though uh, I got this fellowship in my graduate research, I receive a stipend and they, you know, they take care of my tuition. So I don't really have to worry about that. But there are mechanisms so that students can bring in funding themselves instead of it just being the professors. And so this is what the fellowship that I got was. It's called an NIH F31 with the National Cancer Institute. And the way that it works is that the NIH essentially reimburses my institution as well as we call them private investigator or PI, that's my professor. So the NIH will reimburse them for a large part of my stipend, as well as my tuition, as well as you know, uh, health insurance costs. So it helps the research institution because I'm able to bring in some money to basically fund myself, but it also helps me because I can practice writing a grant, you know, getting a grant, bringing in money um, when there's lower pressure because the school uh, is going to pay my stipend whether or not I have the fellowship. That's really interesting. And so this, you said this was your fourth year there, or? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in my fourth year, meaning I, I just finished off uh, three years. Okay. What's, um, what will your like, research process be? Has your lab reopened, or what's, what's the situation been with COVID in, you know, right in the heart of New York City? Yeah, so it was, it was very difficult at the end of March and in April, um, and May as well, because although we were considered essential because we're, you know, biomedical research and we're affiliated with the hospital, which was obviously continuing to be open, um, out of prudence, we decided to shut down all laboratories that did not do direct coronavirus research. Um, and that included my laboratory at the time, uh, although we, we are starting to look into a little bit of coronavirus research. Um, so as a result, uh, basically, we were only allowed to go in, you know, maybe once or twice a week and just check in on the most essential experiments that, you know, were, were really time consuming, really costly. And, you know, we really couldn't let those go to waste. But other than that, everything was completely shut down. And then starting in May and June, we did a phased reopening where we had 25% capacity, 50% capacity, and so on. And so now we're back to 100% capacity, but you know, we're all encouraged to, to keep distant and also to remain shift work as much as possible 
to you know minimize the amount of contact between us. Um, I, I saw the men's basketball, the Swarthmore men's basketball account tweeted something to the effect that like eight years ago you were sitting, I don't know, in Landry's office and like you said that you were going to get this fellowship. I think that's what they're saying. It, has, has this been your goal this whole time or what was, what's the story behind that, that tweet? Yeah, so basically I knew I wanted to be a biomedical researcher when I began Swarthmore. Um, I didn't necessarily know about this fellowship, but because this fellowship is so instrumental in having a track record of securing funding, and that's what you would need to progress and become an academic scientist, um, you know, it, it's definitely a part of my career goals. It's a huge cornerstone of my career goals. So, you know, that day when I was, um, it was like a recruitment meeting with Landry, I was telling him that I wanted to be a cancer researcher and, you know, I didn't know much about exactly what the process was going to be, but at that time I knew this is what I wanted to do. And now, you know, it's nice to reflect on the fact that I've been reaching the milestones necessary to achieve the career. That's great. What, uh, what brought you to Swarthmore in the first place? So um, initially it was basketball, you know, the communication that I have with Landry and um, just trying to get recruited by high academic D3 schools. And uh, actually that day when I had the, the campus visit and, you know, spoke to Landry, but then uh, Coach Brandon McShay took me on a tour of the campus. And that was when I was, was committed. I was sold. I saw how beautiful the campus was. I heard about the educational opportunities. I heard about Landry's vision, which also, you know, came true. Uh, reflecting back on those times um, and you know I was immediately sold and I did early decision and you know came to Swarthmore. Um, as a student at Swarthmore who were some uh, professors of yours that really were influential in your career path so far? So um, one of the uh, professors who was really influential in my career in terms of you know biology um, was Professor Jody Schottenfeld Rones, who was at the time a visiting professor and is now at Princeton as a lecturer. Um, I did my honors thesis with her. I did, you know, an honors course with her. And um, generally, she, she just, uh, you know, mentored me, showed me um, the ins and outs of what it's like to be a scientist and the opportunities that are there. So I went to conferences with her, both regional conferences and national conferences, um, which is also a part, a, a huge part of, you know, sharing scientific resources and understanding with each other. Um, so I would say that she had a, a huge impact on, you know, my specific biology career development. And then um, I think also just like some of my interactions with um, Dean Lewis also were, were very instrumental. Um, also Martin Warner, he was a, a huge support for me throughout my career. Um, so I, I kind of want to ask a question that's kind of just general about, uh, you know, scientific research, medical research. Um, I feel like in the news, like, I feel like the general public and the news media often struggle to understand what scientific articles or, you know, scientific papers and scientific research are trying to say. Um, and often misinterpret things. I don't know if that's, you know, something that you've noticed as someone that's been in scientific research. Um, 
you know, for like someone like me who doesn't have a scientific background, how can I be a discerning reader of what's being published and really determine whether what I'm reading, like if there is, you know, statistical significance to what, I, you know, to the study or, you know, what are just some general things that I can be looking for to be a discerning reader of scientific publications? Or? Yeah, so, you know, that's a great question. And to be honest, it's, it's incredibly difficult because not only is scientific literature written for the scientific community, but it's often written for the very, very specific subfield that you may be interested in. Um, so for example, I mentioned that I study immunology as well as cancer research. So I'm gonna really be able to have a discerning eye when I read that literature. But even when I step outside of my field, it's hard to, to pick up on the, the nuances that you could only learn by doing, you could only learn by being involved. So I think the important thing is how many people are saying what's being said, uh, for example. So if you're reading an article you know, or an opinion piece and it's only one expert, you know, one doctor that's saying these things, then you, you really have to go and try and corroborate what they're saying with other people. Whereas if you're reading an article and you see a number of doctors with, you know, credentials and credibility, those are, are more trustworthy because they come from different perspectives. They'll have quotes um, from a lot of different perspectives. And to be honest, a lot of times the scientific community doesn't necessarily agree or have any consensus on something until years and years of research have shown, you know, exactly what the case is with the topic. So I think in the time of coronavirus, it's, it's difficult for the public and it's also difficult for scientists because you're kind of getting a peek into what it's like to be a scientist where one person will say something, another person will say another thing, you know, in their research, in their papers, and they might disagree. And, you know, it just takes years of, of work and, and, and recapitulating the data in order to understand what is really true and what is really happening. So, you know, my advice would be um, to just really just focus on understanding whether or not multiple people, multiple sources, multiple experts agree on the thing that's being said, because that means that there's probably a lot more data and a lot more support for that. Um, and then another thing that I'll say, and this has been difficult recently, is that uh, there's peer-reviewed scientific research and then now recently, we've been seeing a, a lot more of what are called preprints. So what a preprint is, is an unpeer-reviewed manuscript. So this is what you would send to Journal X, and then Journal X would be able to have experts review that and have you make revisions so that you know, you're, you're, you're being faithful to the science. But now, because we want the data so quickly, a lot of these unpeer-reviewed preprints are getting commented on by the media, and you see it in journalism. Um, and you know they do say, "Oh, this was not peer reviewed," you know, in the fine print. And that's really important because peer review can catch on some of the subtle nuances that people will pick out and say, "Oh, look, you know, so and so scientist said, for example, coronavirus was made in a lab," where you know that was an unreviewed, uh, unpeer reviewed paper that said that. And the scientific consensus is that it wasn't. So, you know, that's just an example of things to look out for. Yeah, that, that was a really helpful explanation. Um, and it, it really seems like, you know, repeatability, um, like just being able to get as much data as possible is really important. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, um, you know, it, in, in science, it is difficult to be able to repeat and reproduce experiments that are done, you know, on opposite ends of the world, opposite ends of the country, and sometimes even in the same institution. I mean, that's just the nature of science sometimes. So when you see things that are reproducible and repeatable and multiple studies show the same thing, those are the things that we as scientists have the most confidence in. Very good. Um, Chris, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk basketball. Uh, what, what are some, uh, you were a key part of the Swarthmore men's basketball renaissance. Um, what are some of your top memories from your time on the team? Wow, top, I mean, there are so many top memories. Um, I, I mean, we could just go, you know, kind of year by year. Uh, freshman year was difficult, I think, because we didn't have the season that, that we had expected. Um, we had some injuries that really derailed things. It was, it was new for, for us, you know, my class was the first recruiting class. Um, but there were definitely a lot of memorable times, especially with teammates, especially in terms of the way that we bonded um, through that experience and, you know, kind of just getting ourselves excited for the future and how much better that we were gonna get. And then, um, transitioning into sophomore year, I think that's when we realized because we had been on an upward trajectory that, you know, we had such a young team that year. And I think that was a lot of fun and, and really a great memory is that we had a young team and we had this excitement, like, you know, we're almost 500 this year, but next year we're going to be even better because, you know, all of our guys are going to grow up. Um, and that's exactly what happened. You know, so fast, uh, flash forward to junior year and we make the conference tournament, you know, we make the championship game, um, you know, making it to ECACs, even though that year I was injured, that was really memorable because we made history. Uh, and then, of course, so, um, senior year, when we finally won, you know, the first championship, first Centennial Conference championship um, in the history of our school. That was just incredibly exciting. You know, it's a memory that I'll never forget. Uh, the excitement in the building, the, the fans, you know, seeing that for the first time in four years. I mean, it was not like that the freshman year, you know. So I think the, the greatest memory is just, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the fact that when I was on my recruitment visit, Landry, you know, laid out this vision for us. You know, even freshman year, he took us to, um, in, in Salem, Virginia, where the Final Four used to be held, he took us there and he said, you guys will be at the Final Four. Well, we weren't, but it was, you know, the next year or two years later or whatever. Um, but just seeing the vision really come to fruition and being a part of it, you know, starting out with the difficult part where we were losing and practice was super hard um, to making it and, and winning the championship and then watching the team take off even after we left. I'm sure that was a really satisfying feeling just like seeing like, hey, we built this and like just seeing where the team has gone after since you've left as well. Uh, did I'm trying to remember, were you out in um, Fort Wayne, Indiana for the, the Final Four championship game when uh, 2018? Did you make the trip out there? No, I wasn't able to make it. Yeah, that was that was a really cool experience for sure. Yeah, I, I watched it on CBS at yeah. home. Never, never thought you would say that, right? Watching Swarthmore on CBS. 
Um, uh, so Chris, uh, what, what's a practice, what was a practice with Landry really like? What's, uh, what was that like? So the practices have always been, you know, incredibly regimented. Um, and even though I wouldn't say the intensity, but I would say the emphasis on, you know, very, very rigid discipline has changed throughout the years. Um, but I would say that, you know, the regiment um, really hasn't. So for example, we would run drills, you know, from anywhere from one minute to five minutes. And we would have Tushar, we would say ticket Tushar, um, because he was our manager at the time and he would run the clock for the practices. And we would go from one drill to the next with no lag, um, you know, really no time off. Even our water breaks were heavily regimented. You get a minute, get your water, and then get back into the drill or, you know, get back to running the plays. And I think that was really helpful for us because, you know, there's no time wasted. We were able to be very efficient with our practices and get through a lot. Um, during my freshman year, a lot of, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of the emphasis was on discipline, establishing a culture. So we would have, you know, these heavily regimented practices. And then we would also have consequences for when, you know, we were out of position. It would be things like burpees or, you know, jumping jacks or you do a sprint. Um, and I think a lot of that has, has kind of been phased out because during those early days, we were able to establish this culture of discipline that has been carried out through the leadership and the older guys and passed on to the younger guys so that, you know, we don't have, you know, Landry, I guess, figured that he didn't have to provide the negative consequences for, for not being disciplined when the positive consequences were winning like we were. Um, so that was that was the real shift that I noticed from my freshman to my senior year is that the, the structure of the practices were the same, but, you know, we were able to be a little bit more fluid and, and really correct each other as players rather than having Landry do it as a coach. And I think that's really what helped us to begin to win, to trust each other, um, and, you know, to carry on the culture to, for years and years to come. That's good. Um, Chris, uh, have you uh, been keeping up with the, the NBA bubble? Have you been watching watching games? Since yeah, I, yeah, I, I've been watching the the ten minute highlight videos on YouTube and you know following the scores. Nice. Who's your top top team top player that you like? I'm a LeBron fan, so wherever LeBron goes, I follow. Essentially, um, you know, I, I love his gray beard now. Uh, you know, dunking on competition with a gray beard it's so inspiring so I'm gonna pull for LeBron and the Lakers um you know you don't have to call me a bandwagoner I, I know what I am <laughs> I like it is uh Chris any uh anyone that you want to give a shout out to or any final thoughts before we wrap up the interview well I want to give a shout out to um you know the, this past team that went number one for the entire season and, you know, unfortunately wasn't able to compete for the championship. But I mean, I just feel such pride in seeing this happen. I mean, I, I really could not have imagined such success to where we were unanimously number one for an entire season, you know, so that's incredibly exciting. And then of course, all those that came before that I played with um, and I feel really fortunate that I'm able to maintain a friendship with you know all those guys from different years going forward 
And, you know, that's a real testament to the culture that Landry established and the way that all of us bought into it. And, you know, it really strengthened our relationships. That's great. Chris, and of course, Donnie. Of course, Donnie. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It was a pleasure getting to catch up with you. And uh, I hope to see you back on campus again sometime. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Brandon. This has been a pleasure.